Open up your Bibles to the scripture that I'm about ready to put up here. Here it is, Psalms 24. We're going to be doing the series today, What is God Like? Psalms 24, we are so happy that you're here. If you're a visitor, you're a VIP, we love you. We're going to buy you a new pony. Amen. And the one that's going to do it, Nick, would you raise your hand? This gentleman right here, go to him to claim your new pony. No, I'm just kidding. It's great to have you here. We've been on the red eye. We've been out there on the sign. We're so here. Glad you're here. We will not embarrass you. All right. Praise God. Psalms 24, who is God? And now today we're going to look at what is God like? You know, I don't have grown children yet going through adolescence, but I have heard from my theology teachers that children ask the most difficult questions that you could ever come up with. Where's God, Daddy? Well, God's over there. Why can't we see God? Well, because he's a spirit. Is God like a ghost? No, he's not like that kind of spirit. Is he here with us now? Yes. Then why can't we see him? Well, I said he was over there. And then, Mommy, how come Grandpa died? And I don't know about you, but you've heard this before. Well, Grandpa died because God needed another angel in heaven. And then the child might say, well, if God needed another angel, how come he didn't just make one, Mommy? And we begin to hear these questions from children about God and and in actuality, they're quite complex. And we live in a world where science now seems to start answering all these questions because we have telescopes now that can actually go out there and we don't see God. We can actually see beyond this galaxy. We can see other galaxies. As a matter of fact, they say that as they're estimating through these telescopes, the Hubble telescope, that there are now as many galaxies as there are stars in a galaxy, and that is anywhere between a billion to two billion stars in a galaxy, and they're saying there's anywhere between a billion to two billion galaxies. And so we get older. And now here we are as adults, and we start asking ourselves those questions. I don't know about you, but maybe you like Discovery History Channel. And we start asking these same questions. But now it's to our friends. Hey, Mike, where's God? Well, God's over there. And we go through the whole circle again. I, I went through a funeral, a, a very deep powerful time of hurt a 44 year old man who i went wakeboarding with threw himself in front of a metro train two weeks ago young boy comes up why why would he do that why would god allow that why would god create something to do that to itself and now as adults we actually become more cynical and we can't laugh it off, and the things that used to make us smile don't make us smile anymore. And before you know it, we're working jobs, and we're taking care of our family. And now Sunday mornings can become just like showing up to watch the movies. And you don't go to movies every week, you know. You might show up every now and then. 
You're expecting maybe to laugh. You're expecting maybe to use your imagination to think of something that's not true. But you know Avatar doesn't exist. You know Thor is really not out there. And you just somehow think that going there for a few moments, maybe it might pick you up. And so church becomes like that same thing. Probably Jesus didn't raise from the dead. There's probably really not this literal heaven. I'll just show up occasionally, hear somebody tell me a story about it, because I can laugh and I can feel better. And now you see in America, the number one fascist growing belief system is unbelief itself. 80% of people brought up in the Christian church, by the time they go to a university, leave outside of their doubting the faith that they once believed. So that means today, if you were brought up a Christian and you are still a Christian, you are two out of ten. Eight like you have already left and hence the reason for empty chairs. And so here a pastor comes up like myself, starts to preach to you, and we begin to say, well, prove it, pastor. Prove to me that there's an answer to the problems that I have. Prove to me, just like when I have a headache, I can take an Excedrin and it goes away. Prove to me that the pain that I have in my heart, that there's a literal God out there that can take it away. And you may come here today and, and put on that face of belief, but I know many of you in your heart, when you leave out of here, you really feel disappointed because you came here with a prove-it-to-me attitude, and sometimes it just doesn't get proven to you. And when we ask our friends, why don't they come back to church? And why, we, may, well, we want you to be here and we'll do something fun. Now church is just looked at as kind of that club that I saw growing up of those kids who played Dungeons and Dragons. Now they play it War of, of World of Wars, uh, RPG, role-playing games. Now these people we once invited to our church, they look at us coming, raising our hands, singing songs, kind of like those Star Trek people who just dress up on the week weekends and reenact something but they know that they're really not a wizard they know they're not a Vulcan and they know that they're not on the starship enterprise or fighting some galactic battle but for some reason they just have a good time on Sunday and do it and the friends you invited to church says I don't want to go because in his heart or her heart God is make-believe God can't be proven God is not real if it is, it's so far away, it could never make sense. And only those who really believe that God is real and that have relationships with God must just be really good at pretending. And then the other person just says, I'm not so good at pretending. Look at Psalms 24, verse 1. Now that I have your attention, some of you are already thinking to yourself, man, I should have brought my friend. That's why I want you to come next week. I'm not trying to preach to Christians today. I am trying to preach to your coworker who laughs at you in your face when you say you go to church. I'm talking to the young lady who's going to the club and she thinks you're crazy because you don't. I'm talking to your relatives who think all pastors are there for money and some of y'all didn't come ready to bring your friends because you thought this was going to be another corny sermon no 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 I am speaking to people I have debated for 15 years on the streets that will never tell it to your face but that's exactly what they think about you when you leave you're just pretending and that's good for you but that's not good for me you know you've heard that well I'm glad that worked for you 
Yeah, I'm glad that secret little potion, that, that herbal thing worked for you. <laughs> She's so crazy. She takes that herbal stuff. I'm so glad that worked for you. I'm glad Kung Fu makes your kids better. Look, they've got to send their kids to Kung Fu and soccer because they're crazy. I'm glad church works for you. I'm glad it works. Because in their mind, Bill Gates, what he said stands for what they believe. Bill Gates said, I have better things to do on Sunday, things that actually produce change. Look at Psalms 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it upon the waters. Obviously, there's somebody here that believes in God and thinks that God created something. Let's keep going. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by what is false. Here we see that David is beginning to talk about a God he believes in, and this God he believes in is the God who created everything, and here's something that I don't have time to get into, but it actually is based upon what we know, that out of the waters came the earth, the dry land, not the other way around, and yet he says, I believe a God did that, not mindless chance, and when he talks about this God, he knows he's speaking the people of a pagan mind who are going to begin to say, well, where is your God, because here is our Christian, he's somewhere here up in these mountains uh, to the to the Greek Roman pagan people here is Mount Olympus uh, our God Hercules he is somewhere up there he is now answering the question if you want to go to the mountain the place of my God you don't do it by worshiping an idol or a statue or climbing somewhere in Tibet you do it by cleansing your hands purifying your heart and not swearing by an idol or what is false Basically, the God he's talking about is not regulated to a mountain or some type of a place or even sets out an image of itself and says, that's our God. Sounds so different, isn't it? from what they had at that time. Keep going, verse 5. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, ye gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The Bible actually talks about that these people who don't go to a place but prepare a place in their heart by being cleansed, by washing their hands of their dirty deeds and not being a part of idolatry, they actually receive the blessing of his presence, vindication, which means God's got their back wherever they seek him. So you could be somewhere around the world, not in a temple, not with an idol, and you could say, God, whoever you are and wherever you are, I cleanse my heart of the wrong that I've done, and I seek you right now. Will you show yourself to me? This God, our God, will come and not leave that prayer unanswered. And then it says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Verse 7, that the king of glory may come in. These gates, we know that when a king literally came into a kingdom, the gates would open up and all of the pomp would come with horses and chariots. Here we're seeing this being symbolic of a gate of your heart. If you open up the gate of your heart, if you lift up the head, the entrance into who you are, the king of glory, the real God, will come in. And you look at verse 8, he asks the question, who is this king of glory? 
And then he answers, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Verse 9, lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Verse 10, who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. I'm going to ask the question in verse 10, who is he, this king of glory? I want you to answer, the Lord Almighty, he is this king of glory. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Okay, who is he, this king of glory? Amen. Y'all are lame. Let's try it again. <laughs> can we all do it in unison? It's not like there's a hundred thousand of us here. I think we can figure it out one more time. Who is he, this king of glory? Amen. I'm so glad you said that. I'm going to play a video for you. It's about five minutes long from somebody that's done a lot more research than I had the chance to do. And as we prepare to listen to this video, he's going to be answering a question that people have today. Couldn't the universe be the only source of life and be what is eternal? What people believe in right now is an eternal universe instead of an eternal God. It's not a debate between us and evolution. It's not a debate between us and those who believe in science. Sir Isaac Newton believed in science and in God. He wrote more about God than he did about science, and he developed physics and some of the foundations of the most complex math and things we do today. And he said, I can discover all of these truths, but I want to know the truth behind the truth. This, to me, what I'm going to play for you right now is to answer a simple question. If you're here today, and if you're saying all of this could have came here by chance or possibly out of nothing, this video, I believe, is going to help you. And if you're excited for the video, somebody say, bring it. Come on. Let's start with the beginning argument, the cosmological argument. And this is the argument that many say is the argument that points to the big bang. You say, well, Frank, you know, we're Christians. We don't believe in the Big Bang. You guys don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. <laughs> the evidence for the Big Bang is pretty good. Some of the evidence I'm about to show you. In fact, I'm going to show it to you in an acronym, SURGE, S-U-R-G-E. And I'm just going to list them here. I don't have time to get into it. But the first argument that the universe had a beginning is from the second law of thermodynamics. That's the S. The U is the fact that the universe is expanding. The R is the radiation afterglow discovered by Penzias and Wilson, two scientists who were actually working out of Homedale, New Jersey, Bell Labs in Homedale, New Jersey in 1965, found the radiation afterglow for the initial Big Bang explosion. The G stands for the great galaxy seeds discovered by the Kobe Space Satellite in 1992. And E stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. Those five lines of scientific evidence are having most scientists admitting, you know what? The universe exploded into being out of nothing. Now, I don't have time to get into why this proves that. It's all in the book, chapter 3, so get the book. Makes a great Christmas present, by the way. Christmas is coming, you know. Um, but I just want to point out that most scientists are coming to the conclusion, yes, the universe exploded into being out of nothing. What is nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about.
That's where the universe came from. Nothing. What rocks dream about. Then this entire space-time continuum leapt into existence. Some say, well, why couldn't natural law have created the universe or been responsible for the universe? Because there was no natural law. Natural law itself came into existence at the Big Bang. There was nothing. And then the universe exploded into being. What do I mean by nothing? No time, no space, no matter. Nothing. And then bang, it all leapt into existence. So if it's not something inside of nature, because nature itself was created at the Big Bang, it must be something outside of nature. So if it's not a natural cause that caused it, it must be a supernatural cause. And that cause must be immaterial. Why? Because it created material. Must be timeless. Why? Because it created time. Must be powerful. Why? Because it created out of nothing. Must be immaterial and spaceless because it created space. Starting to get the idea that this is the God we're talking about from the Bible, right? In fact, Einstein's theory of general relativity has been proven accurate to five decimal points. That's the E in surge. In fact, Einstein for a long while didn't want to believe the universe had a beginning. He actually put a fudge factor in his equations when he first figured out general relativity because he didn't like where it was heading. It was heading toward a creator. He didn't like that. He wanted the universe to be eternal. So he put a fudge factor into his equations to keep the universe from expanding. But then Edwin Hubble was out at Mount Wilson in California. He said, yo, Al, why don't you come out to my uh, telescope here in, in Mount Wilson, and you can look through the telescope and see the redshift in the light to see uh, that all those galaxies out there are moving away from us, which implies that if we could watch the universe in reverse, we would see everything collapse back to a point of nothing. Al went out there. He looked through the telescope, and he went, uh-oh. I made a big mistake. He said, the greatest professional mistake in my life was putting the cosmological constant into my equation. You know what the cosmological constant was, by the way? To do his cosmological constant, the great Einstein had to divide by zero. Ooh, second graders are going, Ow! You don't divide by zero! That's right. But the great Einstein did. He repented of the cosmological constant, and Einstein went on to say, I don't care about the details. What I'm looking for now is the mind of God. He wanted to find out the mind of God. At our knowledge, Einstein never became a Christian. His theory seemed to show that the universe exploded into being out of nothing, which would point to a theistic God. But for some reason, Einstein believed in a pantheistic God, a God that is everything rather than created everything. But his evidence pointed to the fact that the universe had a beginning and exploded into being out of nothing. Now, what would Einstein do if he were here today and you were to say to him, that the universe did not have a beginning. Well, he'd probably do this. Come on, give God a hand clap for some knowledge. If you don't understand all that, you can go to frankturek.com. His book is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. He, he debated Christopher Hitchens twice. And his theories are that as what Sir Isaac Newton and Christians have believed as long as science has been around. What we have always said as Christians is that our God is not a God of a physical being. He is a spiritual being outside of matter, space, and time. And he is the answer to a physical world. I want you to look up here as I give you some understandings of what God is like through natural revelation. Natural revelation is the the revelation that comes from nature. What nature reveals about 
about God. Meaning today, without reading the Bible, not going to a church, every single person should be able to look up and have a conscious mind and see what God is like. Here we go. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Somebody say, no excuse. Thank you. The Bible talks about that nature itself can show us that there is a God. Now, what is the first thing that you can see in nature? You can see that God is a creator. The cosmological argument shows us that everything that is created needs a creator. When I use the word argument from this point of the, the, the preaching, I'm not talking about two people getting together and arguing. Uh, argument is a point of fact stating something, and it remains true until somebody else has a better argument that trumps that one. The creator, God, created the universe. Let's think about the cosmological argument. Can you think of anything in this world that has come from nothing? Can you think of anything in this world that has come from nothing? If you were walking down the beach and you found a watch, would the first thing come to your mind, there must have been an explosion in a watch factory somewhere, and it came together over a 100 years and landed on this beach. Is that what would come to your mind? If you were walking down a beach and you saw a ball, would you say that there must have been an explosion in a rubber factory somewhere that made this ball? If you were walking down that same beach and you saw most Toby Dick's uh, uh, novel, would you say there must have been an explosion in a printing factory that made this novel? What we see in creation is that it always points to a creator. Science verifies that. Science has only showed us the more and more we have studied is that everything has a cause. <coughs> Excuse me. Every effect has a cause. <coughs> little phlegm right there. What caused the universe? They say the Big Bang. The question is, who banged it? Who banged the big universe? Then people say natural law caused the Big Bang to happen. How can natural law happen when there is no nature yet? Do you understand the cosmological argument? What we say in nature is that everything we see that has a cause has a causer. Now, what's the next question that comes directly after that? Who caused God? But you're not understanding the premise. The premise isn't that everything needs a creator. The premise is everything that is created needs a creator. We do not believe that God is matter, space, and time. Therefore, God stands outside of matter, space, and time, doesn't need a creator because he himself was never created. And then the next argument would then be, well, we could say the same thing about the universe, but the universe is not a non-physical, metaphysical thing. The universe dwells within matter, space, and time. Do you understand? The only understanding that would then rationally come is now that if there is a matter, space, and time creation, it must have had a creator that is not in matter, space, and time. That is called the cosmological argument. We learn that God is a creator simply by the universe itself. The second thing that we learn is that God is a moral giver. And how do we see that God is a moral giver from the moral argument? Now place yourself in the opposite of this. If you do not believe there's a God, you believe that the universe 
universe is all that there is and that it is recycling itself continually, that what happens is that it expands, it has an evolutionary force, mindless chance that creates out of non-living things, living things that then evolve from one species to another. Then over billions of years, the known universe recollapses on itself and explodes again and continually does that. If you believe that is true, then your life is meaningless. I love at the end of Men in Black, they're, they're getting rid of the aliens, and all of a sudden the aliens leave the planet Earth, and as they leave the planet Earth, the Earth gets small. And then as they leave the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy gets small. And then as they leave the other galaxies, it gets small, until it's a small little marble that another little alien is just playing with. Your life would be meaningless today if all there is is a naturalistic, materialistic world and you are just here for 70 years. It means nothing what you do with your family. Propagating the human race, as Richard Dawkins says, is absolutely pointless because within a matter of a billion years or so, the universe will collapse in on itself. Everything you know will come to a point of singularity and another bang will happen, another evolutionary flow will happen, and everything you've done here will be forgotten, never remembered, and meaningless. That is why Nietzsche said God is dead. And then he lived in a depressive state the rest of his life because he understood to not believe in God means to not believe in anything morally worth value. And now today atheists are trying to come back to you like Joshua Harris and these people like the rational responders are trying to uh, broadcast to us today. We're atheists and we're happy, but their happiness is a facade. Because if they really lived how they believed, we are nothing more than just particles of dust here on this earth. Now, is that how you feel about your children? Is that how you feel about people around you? How would you like it if somebody treated your children like right now if they were meaningless? So we have a moral compass on the inside of us. Some people try to call this social evolution, that it's still a part of our biological transformation from apes into a communal uh, group of hominoids and living together. But I want to tell you something. Why is it when one of us, like Hitler, begins to kill 10 million people in a genocide based on racism, a group of other of us come in and trump his morality? Why does it always seem, even though we have individual morality, we still have a group morality? that trumps it all and none of us can say where it came from we just all know on the inside it's just not right you've maybe been on the bus and somebody stepped on your shoe didn't say excuse me and you felt in yourself you had a right to get I'm sorry but why do you have that right why do you feel you have that right? Why is it when you see somebody suffering, you feel a right to defend them? Why is it when somebody else says their rights trump over other rights, you say there's a right that's above all the rights that gives that person back their rights? When we have founded this nation, the, 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 the founders of this nation understood it. And they said in the Bill of Rights, we have inalienable rights intrinsic into who we are given to us by our Creator. Why? Because God is a moral giver. We would not have morals unless there was a God. You would not feel wrong about somebody molesting your child, eating your child, or killing 10 million other people's children. Because if you were just here as that mindless chance object, you would not care any more than the ant cares about you squishing his friend next to him on an anthill. 
The next thing we learn is that God is a designer. It's called the teleological argument. What it comes from is the argument of design. If you were to look at Mount Rushmore right now and all of the faces that have been meticulously designed to represent past presidents' faces, you would not say to yourself that Mount Rushmore came to be over wind and rain over a period of a million years by happenstance. You would point to that and say, there is a design. Well, right here we get into what people like to call evolution. As if somehow now the Christian is going to bury his head in the sand like an ostrich and that now the real smart, intelligent people are going to have all of the answers. By the way, do you know that the only degree that Darwin himself had was a Bible college degree? Just to show you who you think he was. When Darwin went to the Galapagos Islands, he saw finches. These are birds. He saw the birds that lived on the rocky side of the island that had to hit hard objects and tough nuts on that side. Their beaks became to be short and stubby, able to take great impact. He then went to the other side of the Galapagos Islands where the, benches, uh, the, 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 the finches could fly into the trees and had to get the fruit and the things out and to get the nectar out of the fruit itself. They began to draw out long beaks that were sensitive that could go right in like a needle out of that he said that all species have a common ancestor in the time of, of, of Darwin when you would look into a microscope uh, microscope and you would look at a cell to him it was just a blob of goo he had no idea what we were soon to discover that inside that cell, inside the proteins, inside the amino acids, there would be this written code called DNA that is more complex than all of the libraries that we have here. And it is that DNA that then makes everything what it is. A banana is a banana by the written code of DNA. A human being is a human being by the written code of DNA. And yet all of this DNA, all of this programming into the universe has no way of being there by accident because it all forms by a system and now today some of the greatest scientists the man who discovered and worked upon the genome code to break our human genome code is a Bible believing Christian at the top of his scientific game he wrote an entire book from the genome project my friend this is not Mr. Rogers Christianity the man in charge of the genome project said it is impossible that the information that passes from one thing to another could be put here by accident. This DNA is working itself out as an intricate program to someone's design that we cannot see. The next thing that you see, it's called the biggest idea. God is the biggest idea. This is known as the ontological argument, and this is in the first service where I could just see that, you know, they say, you know, here's your mind, you know, that old commercial, uh, you know, dare against drugs, the, the eggs in the pan, here's your mind, here's your mind on drugs, it's frying. Uh, this is what I can say is, you know, here's your mind, and then here's your mind thinking about the ontological argument. It's going to fry your little noodles right now. You might think that I'm telling you a fairy tale may not sound right, but it's one of the soundest reasons for God that we actually give today in philosophical circles. The ontological argument came from a philosopher named Anselm in the, in the dark ages when people were beginning to become rational and they said God's belief is irrational. This is what Anselm said. Can you think of a round square? 
Can you think of a round square? I'm not talking about an octagon. I'm not talking about something that we could draw within a square or a circle or a square within a circle. Can you think of a round square or a square circle? You cannot. It's irrational. Can you think of a place where you could go where mathematics would not exist and where you could have a rational conversation or discussion without mathematics underlying everything that would be a part of that discussion? Could you be in a place without that? And he began to discover that there were these things on the inside of us as rational beings that everything we did, we assumed that there was an underlying truth and we had an a, 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 a inside a, you know, parameter, a thermometer as it were, to tell contradiction from non-contradiction, meaning a circle cannot be a square and be a circle at the same time. A cannot be different from B and B A at the same time. This is called the law of non-contradiction. I can hear the sizzling already some of y'all thought you were going to hear a Sunday school story about David I'm sorry you didn't get that today I thought I told you we were going to talk about God and what he's like amen and I'm sorry God might be boring some of you but maybe I can get up here and, and sing a nursery rhyme to entertain you but I thought that somebody might be excited to learn about the God of the universe when you think about God what is he defined as, as in the rational mind? It doesn't matter even if you're a non-Christian, but if you're a theist, theism is a belief in God. A, theism. A, negates the theism. Negative, no God. Agnostic, A, nos. Nos is Greek for knowledge. Negative to nos, I don't know. So whether you are a theist believing in a God, an atheist disregarding a God, or an agnostic disregarding that we can ever know, listen to this. You have in your mind the ability to comprehend the very language which I say to mean a rational subject, a person that is bigger than anything you have ever thought of before. That is the ontological argument. You think it's a trick, but Bertrand Russell, the man who wrote the book, Why I Am Not an Atheist, um, excuse me, Why I Am Not a Christian, he was a renowned atheist of his time. He hated Christianity, mocked Christianity. He said the ontological argument is rejected mainly because it sounds fallacious, but none of us can find the words to disprove it. The reason is, is because inside of us, the God thought remains, and it's not irrational because we couldn't think of a circle square. We could couldn't think of a place where mathematics doesn't exist, yet we all can understand a subject and an object called God. Flip it over and study when you get home. I now want to give you some special revelation. Can you say special? Come on, look at your neighbor and say you're just special. I want you to see what special revelation is. Now that we've shown you that in the Bible, you can see that there is a God from the natural world. Uh, excuse me, now you can see from uh, the, the natural world that there's a God. We now need a way to tap into that God. Now, somebody might say, Pastor, how do we know the Bible is true? How do we know the Jesus of that Bible is true? I've done a whole other preaching series on what makes Christianity true. Email me, Facebook me. I'll send that to you. But there's three reasons why the Bible Christianity is true opposed to any other religion. Number one, it's the person of Jesus Christ, and it's the work of the resurrection. The person of Jesus Christ is the most verified miracle worker of history, and the resurrection is the most verified miracle that he ever did. 
This is what convinced such people as Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, and C.S. Lewis. The study of the resurrection and the trueness of Jesus' life. The second thing that makes Christianity unique is the Bible. As we have gone through the time of the early uh, uh, pre-Western civilized history, all religions talk so much myth that people cannot separate myth from the fact. But it is our Bible that gives you the facts within the stories that today we can still see is true. Let me give you an example. When the world religions began to talk about a flood, which by the way, over 300 of the world's societies talk about a prehistoric flood that wiped out the whole world and only a few people survived. This story is retold through myth. It is retold through different opinion and the stories are like a fairy tale. The Bible tells you more than you would ever imagine. It tells you how the ark was built. It tells you what wood the ark was made out of. It then tells you where the water came from. It came from the tectonic plates splitting apart under the earth and causing tsunamis. It explains to you why today they they find oysters the size of cars on top of Mount Everest because through that the mountain ranges came. It explained where the Grand Canyon came from. If you look at the Colorado River, can never make that size of a canyon. It came through the waters running off onto the, the oceans. The Bible then explains that the water receded and from that one man came all the peoples of the earth and it came right around the place of Ethiopia. All anthropologists date back all religion, all languages, all culture back to the bedrock of of all civilization to northern Africa. I could keep you here all day. I could I'm serious somebody God is real. God is alive and I will speak to you today on a level that you might not have been ready for cuz I ain't speaking fairy tale. And that's just to deal with the flood, the global flood. I can explain to you how Native Americans got here by the flood because the land bridge is not here. How did the, how did the ice age happen? The Bible explains how the ice age happened. If a global flood would have knocked out the mountain ranges, it would have caused a catastrophe into the weather that then an ice age would have happened within moments. Woolly mammoths would have been swallowed up into snow because of that cataclysmic uh, 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 problem at that moment with food still in their belly. That's what the Bible speaks of because it affected the weather. Let me give you another thing that the Bible speaks of that no other religion can claim of itself. Not Nostradamus-type prophecies, but over 300 to the point naming nation prophecies. The Bible said that in the end times, everybody's attention would be to the Middle East. The Bible said that the nation of Israel would go into captivity, lose its country, and would do so for over a thousand years, but yet get reinstated, have a nation, and then that would cause the nations around it to to get upset. The Bible then gave you seven signs that would increase towards the end of the world that would be beyond anybody's imagination that would be predicted. One of those things is earthquakes. You're seeing it all around. Tsunamis were predicted in the Bible. World famine was predicted in the Bible. Are you listening? That's not even today's subject. But when you look to the Bible, this is what you see. Special revelation is what the Bible reveals about God. Second Peter 1.21, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke as God was, as was speaking through them by being carried by the Holy Spirit. So where do we say our prophets got their knowledge? Through God speaking through them. And what do we see when we read the Bible? Here's five things. Write them down quickly. I don't have the time to go over every one of them. The first thing that we see, John 4.24, is God is spirit. Somebody say God is spirit. 
Thank you. The first thing that you see is that our God is never claiming to be Thor. Our God is never claiming to be an avatar, part man, part God. Our God from the very beginning is saying he is metaphysical. He is not in physical world. He is not natural but supernatural. You might say, Joe, that's really easy. Do you understand that at this time when the Old Testament was written, it was the only God that was told not to be able to be seen and touched by men? Every other God, the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Indians, all of the gods at that time were physical beings that could come back and forth from one world to the other. Our God has always been told that he is a spirit, he is not with you. This was millennia before people even began to think that our God wasn't a person like us. The next thing that we begin to see is that our God is all-powerful, Psalms 115.3. Why is he all-powerful? Because if he created matter, space, and time like a potter with putty, he can do within matter, space, and time whatever he wants. Now, some people say, why can't I touch God? The God that we serve cannot be touched because he is not of matter, space, and time. Right now, you have matter, a body. You're taking a space, the chair you're sitting in, and you're here at a time. You cannot be somewhere else at the same time. Take up another space at the same time. You cannot be in another body. But God is a spirit, and that means God can control everything in matter, space, and time, and not yet be space and time. That is to be likened unto Steve Jobs creating this iPad yet not being in the iPad and from his position of a different substance of the iPad to create it and have all power within it and to design whatever he wants within it it would then be like Mario Brothers on the iPad talking Luigi to Mario and saying there is no God because I can't see Steve Jobs Steve Jobs is not within the world that he created he stands outside and has all power that is the God we served and we always claimed he was that God we never claimed he was going to come down and hit you with a hammer. We never claimed that he was going to have sex with your maidens. We never claimed that he was going to do those things. He is a spirit and he's all powerful. The next thing that we see is that he's all knowing. Psalms 145, 147, 5 talks about he looks at the entire galaxy from start to finish and knows everything within it. There is never a decision made that he didn't know before you would make it. There is never a thought, never something that you experience in this world that he doesn't already know what you are doing. He is the great creator. He is the great powerful one. Therefore, he can see every decision, everything happening all at once. He doesn't have to wait for anything. He's already there, and he's already where you're going to be, but you haven't got there yet, and he knows what you're going to do. Why? Because he can hold time in his hand like you hold a ball, and he encompasses it, every part of it. He doesn't have to get to the future. He's already there while he's still in the past and in the present with us here because matter space and time is what he holds in his hand and he knows everything that happens the, second, uh, the fourth thing that you learn is that he's ever present. That makes sense now. He's a spirit. He's not limited to a body. He's not uh, uh, hindered by any type of thing within his creation. It is his creation. He manipulates it to his own desire. He knows everything within it. And, of course, he's there present all at the same time, past, present, and future. It's all one to him in his hand. And then the last thing that we see is in Psalms 25, 8, that he is all good. Now, you might immediately say, well, pastor, I have a problem. If an all-good God is all-powerful and is all-knowing and is ever-present, then why does he allow evil to exist? Because if he knew that one of his creations was going to do this and he had all the power, why doesn't he stop it? And so you get into this philosophical argument. 
If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he stop evil? If God is all-loving, why doesn't he stop evil? And if God can be all-knowing and everywhere, why doesn't he stop? And so the, everything we just said throws right back in our face. And they say, therefore, God couldn't be everywhere because he would stop evil. If you saw a child being raped, you would stop it. If you had all power, you would hold up a building from an earthquake. And if you knew everything, you would stop a decision. Therefore, that argument now shows, throws right back into Christian's face and says, if that God does exist that you just told me, and he allows all of this to happen, he's not a good God, he's actually the the devil and we want nothing to do with him because he doesn't stop rape he doesn't stop bad decisions and he's actually letting catastrophe happen all around us but how is he good now a good God would allow evil why would a good God allow evil because evil is a choice you might say well he should take away all of the choice of evil now you're a robot and he's no longer a good God if a good God takes away your choice to choose something that is bad, he is still controlling you, and that is not good. Freedom is good. A good God would allow evil because a good God would say evil could exist for those who don't want good. So he's good that he allowed us to choose evil. And people are still choosing evil, but he's still good. Now religions come into play and they begin to say, well, now we're going to fix the problem of evil. And then everybody lines up, all the religions line up and they come to your doorstep and they present their, their meal to you and they want you to taste a little bit. Some people want them to lay it all out and have a little Buddha with their Jesus and have a religious buffet. But these religions start to come out and address you with a problem to evil. And I don't have time to address every religion, but there's some major categories of religion, Eastern philosophy, Taoism, is going to teach this yin and yang, that good and evil will always exist together, that there's never a way that the good can overcome the evil, and evil overcome the good. It will be a balance of good and evil for all eternity. Does that sound like a solution to evil? There is no solution. That cannot be good, because evil is just as powerful as good, and yin and yang eastern philosophy then hinduism begins to teach that evil is the absence of good and so the more goods you get the more evil leaves you and you will be purged over many lifetimes through karma and reincarnation to then become perfectly good and this will be done based on your good merit and your good works being a vegetarian helping others but really could we ever live enough lifetimes to purge ourselves from even one evil how would you purge, uh, how, if somebody died, how would you ever punish that person enough to bring back that dead person? Once one sin is committed, how could you ever go back to that space and time and, and, and refund the good that was taken away for that evil? And yet we do evil all the time, and there's no way to go back into those times and fill in the gap to, to wash it over in a sense. Islam, just like uh, Hinduism, teaches that same religion of works, praying five times a day towards Mecca, fasting during Ramadan, all of these things, the pillars of their faith and all that they believe is another way to work it out. But our Bible talks about a good God that gave us choice. We made the wrong choice. But then that God sends his son, who we're going to talk about in a few weeks, comes in the form of man, takes upon all of his mistakes, redeems him, buys him back, purges 
crushes the evil because he himself is God, able to, to span all time, past, present, and future, and brings righteousness to whoever calls on his name because of his power. That God purges evil because he becomes, the Bible says, the Son became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Would you stand to your feet today? Come on, give the Lord a hand clap if you love Jesus. Amen. Did you learn something? Can you say amen? If you're happy that I taught you, can you say thank you, Pastor? Amen. It was a little tough at the beginning, but hey, y'all all hang on. Y'all hung on. It was good. Band, would you come, please? I want to ask you the big question. Do you know God? And, and I, I really want you to hear my heart here. I'm not trying to be a know-it-all. I'm not trying to belittle you if you believe something different. I just want you to understand that what they've taught our children wasn't what we used to teach our children, and it has nothing to do with science. It's an agenda by a minority of people that have all of the information about God, but they don't want to follow God's rules, and they're angry with God. They're rebellious. Would you fight the belief in Santa Claus right now? Would you like to start a campaign? I'm against Santa. The thing that you see about atheists is if you don't believe God exists, then why are you fighting it? It's, you know, if you, all, if you only believe in the universe and matter and this is the materialistic world, then why are you fighting our belief so hard? I mean, I don't have to do a campaign against Disney World. And then they'll say, well, you know, it's affecting the children. People are blowing themselves up. Yeah, but ants are eating each other. What difference does it make according to your worldview? Fish eat each I mean, long as we're not eating each other, we're doing okay. Leave us alone. But the reason why they're fighting so hard is because on the inside, they know that there's something they're pushing against. They can't see him. Sometimes they can't feel him. But there's a conscience, a soul, that on the inside wants to resist him. And they're smart people. It's not like atheists are dumb people and we're smart people. What I wanted to show you today is that we're both smart people. Both the Christian and the atheist have science books. Harvard, Yale, Princeton were Bible colleges, my friends. Are you following me? We're not talking about believers in God are, are, are you know, less than sufficient. India has the most collegiate uh, uh, things in America in our medical fields and educational fields, and they're some of the most, you know, outlandish beliefs about God, about monkey gods. Your belief in God has nothing with the ability to do science. But what has happened is, is those who control what they think a textbook should be or what our children should have, they say, now, now, now we can't talk about this. And that should be shaped for churches and a separation between church and state. Do you know that at the time that letter was written, the, the churches were the, by, uh, were the schools? I mean, think about it. What do you think I do here the next 40 hours this week? It's pretty empty. If we didn't have a school building, where would the first place you would want to put school where there's all the chairs? The schoolhouse is where the church is, friends. Little House in the Prairie, that's where they went to school at. Their textbook was the Bible. George Washington prayed. Congress still prays before Congress meet. Why? Why am I saying all of this? It's because in our culture, it's not us against them. 
It's the devil has come to take away all the knowledge that we would have about God away from us so that you would just think that somehow when we talk about God, we talk fairy tales. No, we don't. We have the same science that they do, but the difference is, is ours actually makes sense to the world we live in. I love my children. I would do anything for my kids. If you've ever thought about having an abortion and you kept that child, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying I support Donald Trump for president, but there was an interview with Donald Trump, and they were saying, dude, why did you stop being, you know, you used to be, you know, pro-abortion. What happened? He tells the story, and he said, my friend had an unplanned pregnancy, and they were going to get an abortion. And he said that they were fighting and wrestling, you know, the husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, you know, his friends. They were fighting, and finally they just said, okay, let's just have the child. They had the child, and he said, this is his story, he said, the man said that this child is the most significant thing that he's ever had in his entire life. And he just abhors the fact that he would have killed this child. And Donald Trump, you know, the businessman, he just said, man, I, I never saw it that way. That's why we value life. That's why we try to teach people the right things. And I'm not going to get into politics, but I just want to let you know something that you and I, need to come back to a God foundation in our world. Because the only reason why a man throws himself in front of a train is because he believed that he was nothing more than an animal through billions of years of evolution and that in another billions of years it would start all over again. That's the only reason why you would throw yourself in front of a train. Because you don't think that there's somebody there. And I want everyone to look up at me today. My sister died drinking and driving, and I've done too many funerals to try to pretend it doesn't hurt. It does hurt, and I'm not saying I know your pain, but I want you to hear me today. Just talking about God will not take your pain away. You've got to know Him. I could talk about a million dollars all day long, but it doesn't mean you have it to pay your bills. You've got to get out there and work. And I want to tell you this story in closing today about this great earthquake in Armenia happened in 1988. 25,000 people died. There was a father who had, like every other morning before his child went to school, he kissed his son and he said, I love you, son. I'll, I'll see you today after school. I'll come by and pick you up. But within a few hours while they were getting to school, this earthquake happened suddenly. And within moments, rubble came pouring down on the school, on the children, on the homes, buildings collapsing like you saw in Haiti. 25,000 people died here in 1988 in Armenia. And this father ran to the school where his son was at. And he looked at the rubble and he started picking up stones. He said, I'm going to find my boy. Some other parents standing around him tried to grab him and say, it's over. It's over. Whoever's in there is dead. Let the city people come. You'll have a funeral soon enough. It's over. He said, I'm going to keep looking. True story. He kept pulling out stones. He said, I'm going to keep looking. Eventually, some city officials came over 
They said, sir, we, we've got to start clearing this out. There may be an aftershock. We've got to start moving the bulldozer through here so it doesn't hurt any of the other structures. He said, listen, I'm going to give you one of two options. Either you get out of my way or you start helping me dig. And he started pulling up these stones. And as he was pulling them up, he started calling out, son! 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 And as he got closer, he could hear just something faintly in the background. Dad. Dad. Son! And he said, he's over here. He's right over here. And they ran over there and they started picking up the stones. And he was crying out, son! And he could hear his, his son's voice louder, dad! Dad! And he started just pulling. He said, guys, he's right here. Blood coming from his hands as he's grabbing stones and steel. He's pulling it away. And finally, there's that one stone that comes and the son gets in. And he can look down there and he sees his boy, dad! Son! And he's down there. The son is down there huddled with about four or five of his friends. And he said, Dad, we're here and we're okay. I'm going to start sending them to you. Started sending his friends up like that in that mine that had collapsed out there in that nation. These guys were holding on. And his son came out last and he grabbed him. He said, Son, I told you I would be there. I told you I would come. But why? Why did you come last? He said, because I told him. I said, my dad's coming. And I said, I'm going to stay here until my dad comes and you're going to get rescued. Because he promised me that he's going to come. That's why I went last, Dad, because I wanted them to get safely there. And I want you to listen to me right now. You might be in a world where everything around you is crumbling. You might be in a world right now, you didn't expect it, but everything around you is crumbling. And I want to tell you, I am right there with you saying to you, there is a Father that promised me He is coming to us. He is coming to you. You are not alone. If you'll just hold on, there is a God who is pulling all the junk out of your life, who is pulling through all the hurts you've ever been through, and He is shouting out your name. I'm here to tell you today, He is coming to you. This is a God who will go through anything to be by your side. He has not left you alone. I am maybe the only voice you hear right now, but listen to me. You are not alone. Our Father is coming. He will rescue us. And my job is I'm going to make sure you listen to I want to make sure that every single one of the people that hear my voice, I'm going to make sure that you don't give up. I may seem like a crazy pastor sometimes. I may seem like maybe I'm a little hard. But I'm telling you, I am not going to give up on you until we all get there. Until we all get there. Until God wraps his arms around every single one of us. Until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you came to us. We don't understand why these things happen. We don't even get it, God. And we could talk about all the cool answers, but they still don't take the pain away. But Lord, I can hear you moving right now. I can hear your voice. I may not see you right now, but I can hear your voice calling out to me.
And Lord, I got a lot of friends with me right now. And I know some of them are scared. And I know some of them don't know how to explain what happened in their life. And Lord, some of them might even be upset with you. But God, I'm here to help them find you right now. Because Lord, you're coming. You're pulling those rocks away today. With every head bowed and eyes closed. We're going to pray today for every person that's alone. God is going to come to you right now. God is going to come to you. That's the difference between our God. It's not just a philosophy. He's a person. Let's pray. And then you come and we'll sing a song in closing. Father, I pray they come. I pray they come. Because I hear your voice. And I know you love us. And I know you never will leave us. So Lord, take off the rocks today. Shine the light down in our hole. And come into this room. And wrap your arms around my friends. Because I told them you would come. Would you come to the front if you want Jesus to come and wrap his arms around you? I don't care what you're going through today. Come on, band, just begin to sing as people come. We're going to pray for you today. You're not alone. Jesus. Hallelujah. you to come but our father's here come on just come to jesus whatever you're going through you may already be a christian but just come forward we'll pray for you he's a good god he is a good god oh he is so great one more time come on you today, God. Is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? Is our God? And all will see how great, how great is our God. 
I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal. If you got to go hang out in the cafe, but we're going to keep praying up here. We're going to keep worshiping, but we're just going to dismiss those who have to go. Thank you for coming. Father, we ask you to bless us. Bless those who came today. Let us get back together, Lord, on these life group nights, hanging out on Wednesday. Be with us on our jobs, with our families. And I pray for those who stay after. God, keep moving. God, because we know you're here. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We love you. Keep praying up here. Band, keep singing. God is in this house. He's coming to the rescue. Sing